I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... How Joshua Oppenheimer's nonfiction film diptych, Act of Violence, and Look of Silence, changed the socio-political climate of fear-mongering and corruption in Indonesia. Who is Joshua Oppenheimer? Well, he's a filmmaker who traveled to Indonesia to teach plantation workers how to produce their own documentaries as a means of fighting union busting and corporately controlled big business. While there, he discovered something that most people in the West weren't aware of, a genocide where in 1965, paramilitary death squads indiscriminately murdered over one million people. Oppenheimer then spent 10 years in the country working on a film titled The Act of Violence, where he interviewed these war criminals. This eventually led him down a path of creative entropy, one that resulted in quite possibly the greatest non-fiction film ever produced. The film is so important that it completely redefined the way in which Indonesians discuss their history, shared trauma, and continued political corruption. And all it took was for Oppenheimer and an assorted band of thugs, gangsters, and murderers to ostensibly put on community theater-level recreations of their heinous crimes. Act 1 a staggering work of heartbreaking genius, and not in an ironic sense. An often overlooked dichotomy in human history is that there has literally never been a moment in civilization when suffering did not pave the way forward. From the transatlantic slave trade to the overseas garment manufacturing industry, to for-profit prisons, or even modern cell phone manufacturing business models, to the horrifying ever-present specter of factory farming. The clothes that you're wearing right now are undoubtedly produced in a sweatshop by underpaid workers. Their hard work and skilled talents paid for by pennies on the dollar due to the shenanigans of multinational corporate conglomerates hell-bent on maximizing profits off of your 1999 garment. Most outsiders are cerebral, and Joshua Oppenheimer definitely fits into that category, regardless if he would admit this himself. Oppenheimer was born in Austin, Texas on September 23, 1974. Despite the fact that he would go on to make two inarguably, in air quotes, important films, as a young child, he didn't like movies. His family supposedly bonded over them and took him to see them quite often, but they were too much for him as a young child. As such, he couldn't quite follow them, he didn't understand what was happening and he didn't enjoy the process of watching them as a young person. He's said in interviews that he developed a complex around this, and he felt an inferiority about his knowledge and understanding of movies. I wanted to unpack that a little bit more, because did he grow a greater appreciation for films, or maybe just specifically nonfiction films, or does he exclusively create them because they are a platform and a delivery system for the type of work that he wants to put out into the world? So I think it's a couple things. One. Um, he went to Harvard, which we're going to get to in a minute. He went, he went to Harvard and he was majoring in philosophy. I think he had, he's, he had three majors 
and film was the last one. It was like, it's like, you know, like biological engineering or something crazy, like environmental engineering or something, and then philosophy, and then last film. I don't remember the first two. Those aren't concrete, but it was, you know, very, one of them was math centric. Um, but he's, he's a very brilliant person. And I think over the course of being in school and being in these systems where you work your entire life to get to Harvard and then you finally are there and you're like, oh, fucking engineering isn't what I thought it was really or whatever it was that he was kind of had his sights set on. And so then he transferred to the film department and he said a couple times in interviews that he kind of was like, not not the weakest link in the chain, but just like the person who had not seen as many movies as everybody, like in every instance. And I think I think there's a couple things there. I think that, you know, a lot of times the thing that you're denied as a child or the thing that kind of gives you the most trouble is the thing that kind of ends up defining your life. And for him, it was almost literally. Yeah, he's a really fascinating person to me. Like we're going to play some clips later. And his vocal patterns are really interesting to me. His body language is interesting to me. He's a very interior focused person. He's a, you know, kind of a taller man, but he, he like, he kind of hunches and his, his shoulders kind of bow outward in this U shape. And whenever he does interviews, he's always holding the mic with both hands, kind of almost as if he's worried he's going to drop it. And he's very, um, you know, he kind of talks, uh, you know, this is my film, Active Killing. And he's very precise in his words and he has a large vocabulary, but he, he's very, uh, you know, kind of, direct and to the point and and um cerebral thing uh, very very thought focused but but at the same time he's not someone who's very um extreme or it's a very specific type of charisma that he has and it's very it's very interesting to me that that is the type of person that makes the movies he makes because his movies are really based off of real world conflict like they're based on literally going to war criminals and being like, yo, did you murder millions of people? That's fascinating to me. The yeah. Dichotomy right but there. also, I feel like that's a lot of what helped him do that. Like, can you imagine a, an aggressive, more aggressive person trying to do that? I feel like I feel like his his demure nature is explicitly a one of his greatest tools, one of his greatest weapons for having made these films. Yeah, I'm uh, undoubtedly like absolutely, especially when there's certain places where he's like asking questions or people are saying these horrible things and he just kind of like nods and goes, OK, well, uh, what did you do the next day? Yeah, because I, I I know for sure you could not do that. You ha you have such visceral reactions to things. You can't you can't like hide your reaction to something. You You would be dead. You I would be I would be I would be dead in a river somewhere. Yeah. I'd be like, you murdered how many fucking people? <laughs> Oppenheimer spent most of his childhood in Washington, D.C. and Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was a bright young man and excelled in school. He eventually graduated from Harvard with a degree in filmmaking, his third selected major. He then went on to produce some short films, Hugh, These Places We've Learned to Call Home, The Challenge of Manufacturing, and the entire history of the Louisiana Purchase, which was released in 1997 and won a gold Hugo Award from the Chicago International Film Festival in 1998. When they screened that movie, the entire history of the Louisiana Purchase, Werner Herzog was there, and they met briefly, and this will come into play later. I love your films, Joshua. Joshua Oppenheimer, I'm here to tell you that when I stare into the eyes of your film, 
All I see is a deep, penetrating bleakness of the human soul. I love how he oscillates between that and then also like very kind of blunt, almost like something like my dad would say type assessments of movies. There was an interview I was watching, a Q&A with, with Werner Herzog and Joshua Oppenheimer, where he was like, most of the time, the director's cut of a film is very boring but the director's cut of Joshua Oppenheimer's film is actually the only valid version of the film. Around this time, he began teaching and moved around a lot. And here's where we get to our first turning point in the story. Oppenheimer took a position teaching documentary film to plantation workers in Indonesia. Prior to this position, he had never been to Indonesia. He didn't know anything about it and obviously knew nothing of the language. Here he is describing his experience. To help a group of plantation workers make a film about their struggle to organize a union in the aftermath of the Suharto dictatorship, under which unions were illegal, which meant that, of course, the conditions over the decades and decades of dictatorship deteriorated to the point that in uh, 2001, when I arrived, the Belgian plantation on which we were living and plantation workers were making this film. Belgian company made the women spray the pesticides and the herbicides and they would give them no protective clothing and the mist would get into their lungs and one of the herbicides was so toxic that the, it would then travel through their blood to their liver and dissolve the fabric of their liver tissue and the women would turn yellow from liver disease from jaundice and die in their 40s from liver failure and one of the first things they tried to do as a union was to demand protective clothing and the company hired paramilitaries, thugs, to attack them and to threaten them with even worse. And the workers dropped their demands immediately. And I asked, how can you let this go so easily? After all, isn't this a matter of life and death for you? And they said, it is, but our parents and grandparents were killed here as part of a mass killing in 1965. They were members of the National Plantation Workers Union. And simply for that, they were seen as likely opponents to the new regime. They were accused of being communists and they were murdered and were afraid this could happen again. And I realized right then that what was killing my friends was not merely poison, but also fear. Upon arriving in Indonesia, Oppenheimer curated a series of documentary films and had them subtitled into Indonesian so that the farm workers could watch them and learn not only about the structure of documentary films, but specifically so they could absorb the stories of political revolt and uprising. They would work during the day, and then he would screen the films during dinner, presumably with a really big projector. He quickly realized, though, that not all the workers could read, so they took turns reading the films aloud in Indonesian, and then the plantation workers would discuss the films afterwards. Ultimately, this produced a project called The Globalization Tapes, which Oppenheimer was a producer of. He also Excuse made a few Excuse me, films. why did that man keep eating so much McDonald's? <laughs> I love, I love the idea that that's the first movie he shows. <laughs> he goes over there and he just shows him a bunch of junk documentaries, just like Super Size Me, the documentary about hair that Chris Rock made. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys seen the behind the scenes making of Galaxy Quest? Hey, man, I loved that movie. I know. I I do, too, but it's probably not going to help in a genocide. I'm, that's all I'm saying. Maybe that's a yeah. controversial thing to say, but I know I, mean, I know there's a lot of like a message in that movie of like rallying together and fighting a common enemy and the underdog overcoming them. But I, I don't think it's quite powerful enough to overthrow a Indonesian dictatorship. While in Indonesia during this time, he made some more short films, one titled A Brief History of Paradise as Told by the Cockroaches 
another one called Market Update, and finally, a postcard from Sun City, Arizona. Over the years he lived here, working on these projects, he became close to the people in the villages. He learned the language, and he also learned the intimate and horrifying details of the Indonesian genocide that happened in 1965. In 65, there was a military coup that installed a dictatorship in Indonesia. Remember, this was in the throes of the Cold War, and the US was attempting to make sure that democracy was the ideological yardstick that prevailed. As such, they backed dictatorships all over the world. The first president of Indonesia, Sukarno, held office from 1945 to 1967, when he was ousted by Major General Suharto, who ruled until 1998. The police and military utilized civilian-backed and run death squads to carry out their killings. They assassinated everyone who looked like they might be even slightly left-leaning or present a problem to the regime. But it wasn't just political killings. They murdered the ethnically Chinese, personal enemies, and the children of the people they needed to manipulate into doing work for the new government. Anyone associated with anything even remotely communist or anti-religious was murdered in broad daylight. Large numbers were taken to rivers and streams and brutally killed and then dumped in the water. This was such a cultural institution that for years, people living near rivers and streams would not eat the fish caught out of them because it was a given that these fish had eaten human flesh. This regime of terror and fear never had a true reconciliation. They're still in power to this day. The mobsters, they're still alive. The murderers, they walk freely. The politicians still rule with impunity. Indonesian textbooks skip over this story, spreading false propagandic stories about the heroic anti-communist war effort. In fact, there's a film that every child must watch in school. They watch it every year that details the heroism on display. The children and grandchildren of the victims are made to write book reports on the events as just and necessary every year from middle school through high school. Joshua became obsessed with this history. He began interviewing survivors and relatives of the 1965 killings. You know, the dynamic of the way that the democracy was installed in Indonesia is so strange and fascinating to me. As you've just talked about, there's a lot of propaganda going on and, you know, there's this film that, you know, depicts the genocide as this good thing that happened in history. But a lot of the propaganda, it's, it's almost very tenuous and almost kind of like half-hearted the propaganda does exist but it almost kind of seems like everybody just kind of openly knows the truth but they just kind of allow themselves to it's like this countrywide agreed upon hallucination or like a whole country kayfabing that it was one way when it was actually another way and even the democracy feels very tenuous and kind of like half-hearted where i mean it's not a democracy it's yeah, a fucking dictator yeah but it's like, but exactly it's but it's like i mean I, th I think a lot of the reason why you know they were able to do this is i, I think it's in a couple parts in in the two movies but you know there's there's a specific part in um the look of silence when adi is talking to one of the leaders of the death squad and he says like you know what would you do what would you have done if i had come and talked to you like this during the dictatorship and he says you can't even imagine what i would have done and i think you know as tenuous and almost kind of uh of a facade as the democracy is it seems like there is some kind of difference between the military dictatorship and when they transitioned into this new democracy in the late 90s and it's the difference between like they would have just killed them for asking these questions versus now when they're actually that, you know, they're still the same people. They would just as soon kill anybody who they think might be a communist, but they're sort of 
held back by the fact that they don't have the impunity necessarily to do that just openly anymore. I mean, they could do it if they really wanted to, but it wouldn't be as easy to do as it was during the military dictatorship. But even still, it almost seems like the the democracy or the quote unquote democracy is almost just kind of like a placeholder. It's like they got out of major conflict. The Cold War ended. The U.S. and the West maybe lost interest in them. So they had no real reason to continue on with the military dictatorship. So kind of in place of that, they were like, "Okay, sure, we'll let the governors take care of stuff and you can have your democracy. But I get I get the distinct sense that like at any moment, if they were just like, nah, we're going to do a military dictatorship again, they they could just do it overnight. So it's like this really weird tentative thing that exists. And, and and it's like, it's so weird, the duality of the way that they talk about these things. Like there's a scene where a teacher is talking to students. I think it's one of Adi's sons. It's a class where he's telling this history and he tells this whole thing about how the communists were killed and it was good and they were heroes for killing them and all this stuff. And everything he says is very totalitarian and, you know, propaganda from a police state. And then at the end of it, he says, and that's why it's good that we live in a democracy. So it's like this weird, like contradictory duality that's constantly going on where the things that they say are very fascist, but then they kind of like pretend like they're living in a democracy, but like they don't seem to actually know what a democracy is, or at least they willingly allow themselves to confuse it. It's so fascinating to me. Yeah, it's almost kind of um, there's a a 50 year shared kind of cultural work. Where they're all like, okay, this is the character we're all playing as a culture. We're all playing democracy. Yeah, totally. Uh, but don't, but don't, don't, don't put too much work into it. But we're all a democracy because we don't want to be communists. Why don't we want to be communists? I don't know, but we don't want to be communists. Communists are bad. Democracy is good. So we're, we're a democracy. But nobody really votes. We have a military dictator installed for 40 years and, um, we have rampant murder and crime. And the largest governing body in the country is a paramilitary organization that is literal gangsters. But democracy. But democracy. I mean, you even see that happening right now in our country where, you know, you have a fascist guy who's trying to be a dictator. I don't know what ammunition you brought to this, but I'm definitely going to be talking about some of the extreme parallels between the things talked about in these movies and things that are happening now. Because it's really stark, the similarities. And not even in a way like, this might be where we're going. I mean, it could be, but I don't even necessarily mean that. I don't even necessarily mean that, like, what's happening in our country right now feels like it's similar to the beginnings of something that happened in Indonesia. I mean, like, things that are happening here right now actively feel similar to some of the things happening in this movie, just not as overt. It's like the, the key differences is that in Indonesia whatever's in the water there, like everybody is really just straightforward and earnest. That's kind of the main theme of these movies, as we're going to talk about. People just will tell you straight up that, you know, these these killers will just describe the things that they did in, in just blunt detail. Everybody is really face value with their thoughts and emotions. And so in that way, it's very different from the way that things function here, where everybody's playing a character and there's three levels of kayfabe going on with every public figure. And you never really truly know what's real and what's not. And if in a lot of ways, it's almost kind of refreshing, like, like watching these movies and just being like, man, these people will just 
tell it like it is, but not in like a dumb Donald Trump way. Like they will just be honest with you and tell you exactly what happened, exactly what they're thinking. There's no artifice. There's no characters. And it's like, that's the difference. But aside from that small multiplier, which is like they seem to just be more open and honest about things. There's a lot of similarities between political installations here in the United States and the stuff that is talked about and discussed and happens in these films. Joshua became obsessed with this history and began interviewing survivors and relatives of the 1965 killings and quickly discovered it wasn't safe for him or the survivors. He was despondent. He wanted to help these people that he had grown close to and help them gain a sense of freedom from the past. And then one day, one of his friends made a suggestion, a dangerous thought that could potentially lead to the deaths of everyone they knew. Or perhaps it led to a simpler destination, one filled with hope. Oppenheimer's friend suggested instead of interviewing the survivors, he interview the perpetrators, the thugs, the murderers, the corrupt public officials, see what they would say about what they had done. If nothing else, it would give the families the ability to actually know what had happened to their relatives when they had disappeared into the night all those years ago. And here's where we get to our second turning point. The murderers, thugs, and gangsters that Oppenheimer approached to be interviewed, they didn't just confirm and admit what they did, they boasted about it. humming songs that he only knows from his planet that humans don't recognize. Oh, hey, Dave. Uh, do you by any chance happen to have any more of those uh, pixie box book things that you make or whatever? Hey, Hillsmer, uh, you mean comics? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, well, I don't have any with me right now, but I do have two new comic book series that are starting up. Uh, I wrote a Star Trek series, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, which comes out November 11th. And the way the comic book industry works is that you have to pre-order comics in order to make sure that the stores order enough. If you wanted to pre-order it, you would go to a comic book store or go online and use the code SEP200455. I also have a creator-owned series coming out November 25th called Night Hunters with artist Alexis Zirit, which is about two brothers in Grand Caracas, 100 years in the future, one of which becomes a cop, one of which becomes a drug dealer, and they have to fight their way through the seedy underbelly of the dystopian Venezuelan police state, which you could pre-order with the code SEP201264. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, 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 great. Cool, cool, cool. That uh, sounds amazing. Love it. Love everything that every word that you just said. Uh, I'll, I'll take whatever. 50. Really? Wow. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know you read comics, Hilsmer. Oh, you're supposed to read them. There's a thing about space demons where when it's the summertime, we actually get very cold instead of hot. So I was actually just looking for some kind of kindling for the fire in the living room. Oh, that explains what that bonfire was. That was a sex thing. Act 2. Who knew mass murder aged so well? From 2004 to 2012, Joshua worked on a film about these men and the horrible things they had done. He interviewed close to 50 gangsters and thugs who had either been a part of the death squads or been in command of them. The film did not have a title during this time. Oppenheimer was almost like a sculptor gathering clay. He knew what he was doing, he was making a movie. What were the specifics of that movie? That he wasn't as clear on. And then he interviewed a man named Anwar Congo, and the vision for the film snapped into place. 
this would eventually become The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing is a film unlike almost anything ever made before or since. It's a mind map of a murderer. And no, not like the Charlie Rose interview where he talks to Charles Manson. I know that's kind of a little joke reference or whatever, but it's really true. Like that really defines the essence of the movie and the interviews, because as what is being referenced, Charlie Rose interviewing Charles Manson, that very American journalism style, which is asking probing questions and, you know, kind of leading the discussion in the interviewer, the journalist kind of injecting and editorializing the person's life and you know being like i forget exactly what was said in that interview or whatever but i'm assuming it's him sitting there being like do you think you killed those people and him being like nah man i didn't do nothing i just sat here and loved and i had some friends and you know they did stuff and him being like you know did you you know did you have sex with those women like just asking these probing questions whereas you know, the act of killing. I mean, yeah, he's asking questions, but the questions are very open-ended and they are controlling the narrative, specifically on War Congo. Like it's his movie. He is the one crafting the narrative and, and Joshua Oppenheimer is just there to gently guide it and capture it. One of the consistent traits that Oppenheimer unearthed was that every one of these killers would boast about their accomplishments and then without fail, take Oppenheimer to the scene of the crime where they would reenact it. After having seen this over and over and over again, Oppenheimer made a proposition to Anwar Congo. How would you like to make a movie about your time as a death squad leader and stage reenactments of the killings by any means you wish? Anwar was interested, but he didn't want an actor to play him. He wanted to play himself. And here's where we dip into the bizarre pocket universe of film that I don't quite even know how to describe. Anwar and his fellow mass murderers and gangsters then set about writing, directing, and starring in elaborate recreations of their crimes. Costumes, musical numbers, and practical makeup abound. What evolves is a document, a fragmented prism of the psyche, a completely unknowable thing made tangible, an emotional fingerprint, something that is completely an experiment in the kayfabe of the soul. It's a deconstruction of the idea of story that is also a traditional story that is composed from behind-the-scenes clips of another story. This film is composed of fragments of a much wider world orchestrated into a dance of trauma, self-denial, and literal war crimes. The participants in the act of killing understand that they're making these scenes for the act of killing, but that they will not be the act of killing, which is a fascinating idea. Um, I can't actually think, maybe you can, but I can't think of another movie that's like this where the process of shooting scenes or putting on a performance is not the desired thing that is being documented. That's such a, a weird gear shift that I, I can't, I, I don't know. Do you know anything like that? Not really. I mean, this is, this is going to be the most out of left field example ever. And I don't think it's accurate. I don't think this is a good example. This is, I, I think you're right that there's nothing like this, but the, the first thing that comes to my mind is noises off where it's a movie about a play being staged, but no, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I can't think of any other movie I mean, it goes back to the thing I was just saying about allowing Anwar and these other gangsters and murderers to guide the narrative. I've never seen this combination of elements coming together into a film ever. I, I've never seen anything like this. And there's so much I want to talk about about this movie. Like, 
I, I, I don't even know where to begin with the stuff that I want to discuss about this movie or these movies, but really particularly active killing. There's an infinite number of curiosities and fascinations. Just to, just to drill down a little bit and give a couple examples, because this is kind of a heady concept if you haven't seen the movie, but just to give some like some little examples of what that means of they're making scenes for a movie, but those scenes aren't in the movie. So the movie opens with a musical number where there's a giant, like 15 foot tall cod fish and a, there's a gangplank running out of its mouth and like seven women in ornate costumes come out and start dancing to it and they're lip syncing to a song that's being played and the camera pulls back and there's a man in drag kind of conducting their dance number off to the side and then you pull back more and then you see a guy with a camera filming them and you're not listening to the music like it's not actually the audio track and they're not lip syncing in time to anything that you're really hearing it's the raw footage of them shooting that scene which is a really strange kind of voyeuristic and they're all of the scenes in the movie are like that. There's never anything that's ever explained. There's never an explanation for why they're coming out of this giant fish, why the song, the why of of the movie in terms of these narrative sequences is never even acknowledged. Yeah, you never you never get a sense of the context of any of this. Like what is this movie that they're making? You literally never know. You never know what the fish is or what these dance sequences are, or what the women singing, like what that has to do with the scenes of people being killed. And it it creates this, you know, there's there's a very specific visual language surrounding surreality in film. And it takes a lot from dreams and it takes a lot from this kind of like um, ethereal nature that a lot of us have experienced when we're non not fully conscious. So there's lots of, you know, kind of music and people in slow motion or time is sped up but it's never you might not know necessarily what's happening but you always know when a movie is depicting something that's surreal you know what the ultimate thing that it's saying is and that's the thing that's so interesting about the act of killing is that why is never truly answered which is kind of a metonym for why would these people commit this mass murder because you're simultaneously trying to understand the motivations of the people involved both through the decisions that they've made creatively and the horrible crimes and atrocities that they've committed so there's this dual seesaw of like you're trying to understand these people on multiple fronts and that kind of like friction of these ideas is what ultimately sparks the revelations of these character arcs over the course of the film where these where certain people choose to believe something different than they thought at the beginning of the movie. And some people are very steadfast and, and stuck in their ways. And it's, it's fucking fascinating. Like there's one, there's one scene where there's the main guy's head on Congo just on a rock. He's been beheaded and his head is on a rock. And there's like a demon angel woman who's being played by uh, this man in drag singing to him. And you don't know why or what or where it just is. You're just watching them having an argument about filming that scene. Yeah. And 
you know, it's actually kind of a good thing. And I think maybe this was a coincidence or maybe maybe you're a genius and you did this on purpose. And it was this 4D chess game of setting up concepts. But it's really good that we established talking about Werner Herzog's ideas of reality in documentary filmmaking, which we kind of talked about in the first episode of the Chris Hansen series, because it's a good primer to lead into this, which is Werner Herzog executive produced this film. He did so because he saw it and immediately had to. And he's a big proponent for this movie. And I feel like probably has a lot to do. And, you know, he said it as such in, in interviews and things, but it has a lot to do with how this movie is a perfect example of his belief structure about documentary film and this idea of the things that happen in this movie. There's a couple different layers to it. You know, we're talking about this dreamlike quality of the film, which is definitely there. And it really is like that where you're sort of dropped into these moments out of context seemingly in no really coherent order and there is a coherence to the overall film it's not it's not some like abstract what the fuck is going on type movie like you definitely know the through line of the film the emotional through line is what is coherent but the literal chronological temporal through line is abstract and you never really quite know what's going on from scene to scene you know like in a dream where you kind of you're you're one place and you kind of don't intellectualize why you're there or where you are and then you'll just randomly be in a different place out of nowhere there's no transition you don't walk to it there's no like page turning in a book you just are there and you're just suddenly talking to somebody else in a different place and this film has that quality to it but there's also this other quality to it which is within these scenes it almost feels like one of these like farcical documentaries like american movie where you know, you have all these people making this movie. And if you didn't have the knowledge that they were all mass murderers, you would almost be very endeared to a lot of these guys in these scenes because they are characters. You can't even be described in a movie that is about a mass genocide. There are laugh out loud, funny parts like that are driven by these characters and just the bizarre things that they do and their interaction. The guy who dresses in drag for the movie, Herman, that guy is a bumbling sidekick character from a movie. We got to talk about him for just a second. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like a he's like a portly, probably like five, eight to like five, ten guy, probably like a good hundred pounds overweight, giant pot belly kind of the like yeah what he said type of guy in a high school movie like I, not to call him dumb but he's kind of fucking dumb yeah, he's just literally Anwar's like hype man like he's just there like literally at his side being like, like you just said just being like yeah what what Anwar said you better believe it like, bucko and yeah and like Anwar is this kind of like middle tier gangster from the 1970s and Herman is like He's uh, he's from the next generation down, so he wasn't there for the genocide, but you can tell he, like, wishes he was. So he's a literal gangster, and they show him at multiple points, like, taking money from people and threatening people and doing all of these kind of, like, really dark things. But he does it, like, th with this kind of, like, impish charm and this kind of, like, boyish kind of ebullient behavior. And the weirdest thing is in the middle of the movie, he tries to run for public office. He tries to, and he is for parliament, so, yeah. he, for, he tries to run for parliament and he is blatantly saying, I am a corrupt official. Like he's saying, I am a mobster gangster and I'm going to run for this corrupt p position. And then he'll like go and give these public speeches, which he's not particularly good at. And they show him at one point where he's 
standing in front of a TV watching Barack Obama give his acceptance speech at the convention when he uh, actually it might have been a convention. It might have been when he actually won uh, the election. But whatever. When Barack Ob- he watching an acceptance speech from Barack Obama and he's like mimicking Obama's like vocal intonations and his body language and the way he gestures with his hands. And it's so weird. And then he goes out and give public speeches about how he's on the side of the working class and how he believes in workers rights. And then he'll like get off, get off the stage and turn to camera and be like, yeah, that was some fucking bullshit. I don't believe any of that shit. I just want to get, and he he literally says in the documentary, I want to get elected so that I can intimidate people and run a corrupt regime filled with fear and murder. Yeah. He says, if I'm elected, and then I get put on the housing board, then I can go to any building here in the city and I can just tell them that there's code violations with their building. Almost like he's like telling us something that we just never thought of before, weaving this tale of like, can you believe I can do this? And he's basically like, if I get on the housing board, I can go to any building in the city and I can just tell them that there's code violations and then I can shut down their building and they'll have to pay me. Even if there's no actual problems with the building. And if I do this on a building and I say, you know, for this code violation, it's $10,000 and this code violation is $10,000 and, you know, 10 times 10, that's $100,000. And that's just one building. Like he, he's saying it like that. And you saying he's not particularly good at public speaking is such an understatement because there's literally a scene where they're driving down the street in like a car with a loudspeaker, like one of those stereotypical things you see in movies of politicians driving through a city yelling out he's got the little hand the 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 microphone for this loudspeaker and he's like vote for me uh and this stuff is coming out of the loudspeaker like people in the city can hear him saying this and he's like wait what what's what's the next part and this the guy next to him tells him he's like oh yeah because of a ah what 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 do i say what do i say and like and everybody can hear him because this is all being blasted out of the loudspeaker yeah, he's a moron. <laughs> and he but he's also the one of the more interesting components of the movie because like I said previously, you you're never given any context for why he's in drag the whole time and you're also the uh, the other th- thing that's so which I I'll I I know why because I looked it up, but he in the movie you don't know why he's in drag. And then the other thing that's so interesting about him is that he really starts taking the acting side of this thing seriously. Like everybody else like Anwar Congo can't really act he doesn't even he doesn't even try he like he just in all the scenes he's in he just says everything in a flat monotone yeah but on but herman is like fully embracing the character living in the moment actively listening like he's he's really there and he even is really good at directing like there's multiple scenes where they get these little kids to audition for them or or women to audition to play like people that are going to be villagers that get murdered and stuff and he like coaches them and like really gets them to start crying like there's a bunch of parts where these little kids start weeping openly or like you know these women that are they they get like he's like you know aggressively in their face like trying to get them to act and they like rise to the moment and meet him and they like perform these scenes with like sometimes 50 60 people watching them as they're rehearsing and it's really bizarre that he's so fidelitous to that artistic pursuit while simultaneously being such a cretin. It's just those two things are constantly at odds with each other, which is, again, what makes the movie so fascinating. Well, I mean, it speaks to the 
almost almost the casual tentativeness of the the extreme cruelty of these people. Like, I think the reason why they seem to be kind of so aware of it, because they talk, I mean, they're, they're kind of self-aware. I mean, to certain shades, they are in denial and they've sort of either been led to believe or allowed themselves to believe that the things that they did were noble and good and, and that, you know, the communists were evil and that it was a righteous act to kill these people. But I think under that very shallow surface level, many of them are pretty much aware that it was wrong. They talk openly about it. And I think that's kind of the way that this film is able to function is because of how willing they are to talk about it. Nobody who has committed atrocities in the United States would be this open to discussing these things. It just wouldn't happen ever. But these people are so willing to talk about it because I think that they kind of are aware. They're kind of self-aware that these things were wrong and bad. Several times Anwar talks about how the things that he did were sadistic and how he had actually watched movies and like horror movies and really, you know, gory, sadistic films. And he actually like emulated them for his things that his killings, his murders that he did. And he was trying to make them as sadistic as possible, almost as this weird performance of like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm pl- I'm, I'm supposed to be a mass murderer. So I'm going, I need to like do it well. I need to like rise to the occasion of being sadistic and 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 there was even there's even a discussion at one point between two people about there being a difference between cruelty and sadism and someone being like you know there's a difference between that and one another person being like no there's not they're the same it's a it's a, it's a synonym like they're they both mean the same thing and there is this tentativeness to the cruelty where i don't necessarily think that the cruelty is within them. I don't think they are necessarily sadistic people who loved this. I think that based on the climate of their time, the fact that this was happening, I'm not, and I'm not trying to say this in a way of like, it wasn't their fault. They were just doing their job or one of those like things that Nazis say or whatever. It was a hundred percent their fault. They are fully responsible for their actions, but I don't think that they were actually, I mean, maybe some of them were likely there were people who genuinely enjoyed it and were just psychopaths but i think a lot of them weren't they were just kind of like their government told them that they had to do this and not in a way of like oh i have to do this but they were just like oh i have to be a killer and murder all these people okay i guess i'll do that and then they like rose to the occasion and like played that character and so because of that i think that there's some element of like when they're boasting about it and the way that they talk about it it's all like a character that they're putting on because they feel like they have to. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's true. I think that there is a somewhat similar to that, you know, you tell a lie enough times and you forget that it's a lie, it becomes your truth. Like, I think there's something like that just in terms of the culture produces enough homicidal maniacs and gangsters that people who are in the middle just become homicidal monsters and maniacs because it's the way that they survive. The scenes that were finished for the film are barely in the film, and that's the point. They're not the end goal. They're the catalyst. There is no separate fiction film called The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing is the only film that will ever exist. This isn't a trick either. Oppenheimer isn't trying to pull a fast one over on these men. The whole process is a response to their openness and complete transparency. One of the many brilliant aspects of the film is that it is not concerned with holding your hand about questions that you might have about practicalities. 
It's only concerned with telling you the facts and the emotional ramifications. The almost unthinkable part of this film to me, aside from the obvious practical dangers, was that there's no way he wasn't lost inside this film. He interviewed 41 gangsters before he got to Anwar Congo. 41. I've said this on the podcast a couple times and uh, to any of my friends who will listen to me, but the book I'm working on right now is kind of one of those things where not that I necessarily feel like I'm completely lost, lost within it, but it is one of those things where I'm like, wow, this has taken me years and I am not close to being done. Fuck me. And I can't imagine the excess. You've got snow blindness, except for it's like pink blindness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I've made hundreds of pages of comics and I've made hundreds of pages of prose and there's more hundreds of pages of both of those that need to be made. And that is just me. I'm the only one that is responsible or a potentially um, arbiting factor in those decisions or trials or crucibles. The fact that he was at, in a foreign country interviewing war criminals and he interviewed 41 of them over undoubtedly years before he figured out what the actual movie was is just, I think that is the most creatively courageous thing in this entire story where he's literally putting his life on the line, but being able to waste years of your life and then put that work in a hard drive and not use it for the thing because you figured out, oh, this is the thing. Yeah, just kind That's of why the kind of doing it and just being like, I don't know what this is for. I don't know what I can do with this, but I feel like all these mass murderers being willing to reenact their killings. I feel like I need to do this. I feel like I need to get this. I don't know why, but I feel like I can do something with this somehow, some way down the line. But see, that is still like an optimistic view of it because that is... There's no terminal point in that you, but you have a mission, you know, it's, it's darker because you have a mission. It's darker because it's, I'm going to make a movie about these guys. What is the actual movie? I don't know. So you're just like wandering around. Like you said, snow blindness. You're just like wandering around for years, just going, hello, is anybody out there? Hello. And you keep getting these responses and these horrible facts and these demeaning, awful, despicable interactions. And, and it's traumatic and emotional and, and bleak. And you're just spending years on it. Years. And there's no actual, you're just like collecting bricks, but you're not putting them and building a wall. You just have a garage filled with bricks and you just go into your garage every couple weeks and you're just like, fuck, man, I gotta, I got to build this wall, but none of these bricks are the right brick to start with. And that's just so impressive that he was able to maintain a narrative. I said it before. I'll say it again, I guess. Fidelity, the, the, uh, a, a, an allegiance to the truth. That is so impressive. And I don't think literally anybody else could do it. Like this is a movie that only Joshua Oppenheimer can make. And it's just so impressive on an artistic level. It's impressive on a logistical level. It's an Im impressive on the artistic level of like, I can't believe he got these guys to do this and make this beautiful film, this, this crystal cathedral to trauma. It's amazing. But the fact that he was strong enough to not throw in the towel, which I'm sure he did, right? Because we're seeing it after he's been there for 12 years or whatever. But I'm, I'm sure there's points where he was 
sitting on his bathroom floor crying about how the fuck am I going to make this into a thing? Did I just waste 10 years of my life? Because every creative has had that at some point. But I just am so... I just need to point out how beautiful and impressive it is that any human would be able to have that much strength in order to say all of this work I did was practice in order to get to this point. And from here on, now I'm going to start running the race. Yeah. And, you know, not only just that, but just in general, I think holistically, he's the only one who could ever have made this film because as we talked about before, the way that the film is constructed. It's this weird perfect storm butterfly or chaos theory type situation where anybody else who stumbled upon this, any other human being in the world who was put into this exact circumstance and stumbled upon this opportunity to interview killers in a mass genocide who are not in hiding or in jail, but rather just still living their normal lives and celebrated for what they've done and then was given the opportunity to interview them and talk to them about the things that they've done and discover that they are very boastful about them. I feel like almost anybody else in the world would have made a very different type of film, which is a very, you know, looking down onto this thing and being like, look how horrifying this is. Look at how disturbing and horrific this event was in history and these people that perpetrated it. And instead, he found it for a lot of reasons that I think we talk about later of like why he constructed the film the way he did and what the purpose of the film was. He hit upon this idea whenever he met Anwar of like, I'm going to let them talk and I'm going to make this about the way that they're coping with it. And it's almost like you give somebody enough rope to hang themselves, empowering these guys to control the narrative and talk through their demons in that process. If he had just made this movie that was like, look at this horrible shit. Look at this. This person did this. If it was like, you know, voiceover of like, and in 1965, Anwar Congo murdered a thousand people in this office building, then, you know, the the Indonesian citizens might watch that and just think this is just some person coming in and telling us lies about our history or whatever but you know you can't deny it when it's coming directly from the mouths of the people who are happily offering you that information and i don't think anybody else would have made the movie that way and probably wouldn't have been capable of making the movie that way yeah they definitely wouldn't i mean i don't even i don't know if i would even be able to throw out all that work and start again like i i just don't even i don't know how you do it i I just literally don't just just out of almost self-respect on one level where you're it's like your ego won't let you because you're like i put time into this i can't just let it go die what are you talking about dave we recorded three years worth of episodes of deep cuts with it being a celebrity gossip podcast (laughs) and then and then one time one time one which is which is really actually now that we're talking about it the book i'm working on right now actually started as a completely different book so it's kind of similar i deeply deeply empathize with Joshua Oppenheimer. And I deeply and empathize because I we recorded and I edited three years worth of celebrity tabloid gossip podcasts. And then on the last episode, the 300th ep- or 3000th episode, whatever the fuck, I don't know what math is. On that last episode we recorded and we even, we even invented a precog machine so that we could predict future celebrity gossip so that we could have these episodes pre-recorded on launch. And on that last episode, the precog machine accidentally went back in time instead of forward in time. And it gave us a piece of gossip about the Stratemeyer syndicate. And we were like, huh? 
And we did that episode and we were like, wait a minute. What if we did a deep dive explainer show on obscure pop culture stories throughout history? (laughs) Anwar Congo is a charismatic man. He seems kind and avuncular. The film consistently shows him and his two grandsons. He's a gentle man. He starts the film with a shock of white hair and round cherubic cheeks. It makes him look like he's smiling, even when he's not. But Anwar takes pride in the fact that he's murdered over 1,000 people. In his first interaction with Oppenheimer, he takes the documentarian to the second story landing of an office building where he shows how he garroted people with a homemade device. And then, in sheer lack of self-awareness, he admits in a stream of consciousness, cheerful stream of words, that he drinks and does drugs and dances so he doesn't have to think about the things he's done. And that's that's a recurring thing that happens throughout this film with multiple people. And I feel like it is really emblematic of the deep repression that they constantly exercise. They're so repressed and they so bury these feelings deep down and under layer after layer of denial that spontaneously they just erupt in these like weird expository dialogue that would seem unrealistic if it was in a movie. They really do that. They'll just go into these just rants where they're just spewing out personal truth in this very unself-aware way. I feel like the genius of the way that that's constructed is that it helps to sell the reality because the reality feels it's it it's so real that it becomes unrealistic. There's a scene later on in the movie where Anwar's neighbor, who's like just with him and helping helping out making this film, just out of nowhere. It, and once again, you never know because the way the movie's constructed and scenes are placed out of context and you don't really know the true nature of how moments kind of con- transpired. But from the way that it present it's presented in the movie, it seems like it just comes out of nowhere that they're filming this scene in a little soundstage or something. And this neighbor who's just kind of been there silently, just tagging along the whole time and helping out, but mostly just not really talking a lot. He suddenly just erupts into this like stream of consciousness confession about how his father was taken away and killed by the death squads for being a communist and how they just came one day and took him. And then they found him later, like his body underneath this barrel And then they had to like him and his grandpa had to drag the body and go and dump it in the ocean. And he's telling this whole story out of nowhere. He's like, you want to hear a funny story? Listen to this. And then you just tell they're they're trying to find they're trying to figure out like new scenes to put in the movie. And so their next door Anwar's next door neighbor, who's his good friend, who up until this point has not really been involved creatively, starts pitching a new scene. And the new scene is that it's his father's death. And he's like, we should show the other side of this stuff. So it's not just you guys being heroes, but also showing the impact of the families. And he's like, I'm not saying that you guys are bad guys. I'm not saying that we yeah, he's like, I'm not wrong. I'm not criticizing this. Just I just want to be clear. I'm not criticizing what we're doing, but. And he tells this whole thing and he's got this weird smile on his face the whole time and he keeps laughing at every key moment. And, 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 you know, it's that it's that kind of like weird, nervous, repressed laughter that you do to kind of like let out some of the existential steam of talking about something very traumatic. It, it was actually I, I don't think we talked about it, but in the Shags episode, one thing I noticed in all of the interviews with the, the Wiggins sisters is whenever they would talk about these deeply traumatic moments, they would laugh a lot too much everything that they would say would be punctuated with a laugh they'd be talking about their father keeping them inside and how how humiliated they were 
to go and perform in front of their peers and, you know, being forced to do the calisthenics. And every time that they would tell these stories, they would always just laugh. And the laugh was so clearly this sort of stopgap to fill some of the nervous surface tension that was that's just lingering right there like about to explode it's like either i laugh at this or i cry and everybody does that in this movie everybody laughs at everything that they say there's just this recurring thing of people are telling stories about these horrific deeds that either they perpetrated or was or that happened to them i mean in look of silence the family unit is much more critical of these things but in in the act of killing even the people who aren't part of the death squads they are sort of kayfabing that these things are good and positive and everybody who talks about these horribly traumatic moments they laugh a lot and then this guy when he's pitching this idea he's just like maniacally laughing throughout the entire thing it's so surreal it's so disturbing and I, I've never seen anything like it before. I've never seen not just one person, but seemingly an entire population of people who are all accepting this mass hallucination. They're all simultaneously incredibly repressed, but also very honest and direct about things. And they play that dichotomy of being very frank and blunt and open about everything and yet burying things deep down inside of them and being very unself-aware of showing their hands those moments of like bursting into a stream of consciousness confession of Anwar confessing of how he drinks and dances to keep himself from remembering the way that they nervously laugh after everything that they say you know, just being so unself-aware of these things. It's like a whole community or a whole culture of people behaving in this very surreal way all day, every day. This has to be the moment that Oppenheimer latched onto that propelled him into the act of killing. It's so crystal clear in that moment that there's something lurking right under the surface with Anwar and that maybe Anwar could be reached, that he might be able to have a realization about what he did. Or maybe not. Anwar was a street-level criminal part of the Indonesian underworld's movie ticket black market. He would stand outside of theaters and scalp tickets, and in 65, when everything took a turn, he became an assassin for hire. We follow him as he revisits old haunts, tells stories about the crimes and war crimes that he committed, and as he spearheads these reenactments. He's as close to a protagonist as the film has, and yet, he's small time. There were hundreds if not thousands of Anwars out there, which is a specter lurking over the whole film, which leads me back to Oppenheimer. Imagine spending years filming something just to ditch most of it in order to follow one person, to slavishly recreate every strange whim. And believe me, the whims are strange. From recreating Anwar's literal nightmares, being revisited by ghosts of past victims, to staging musical numbers in front of waterfalls, to staging large-scale village burnings using real military personnel and their families. The film is pure id unleashed, largely because that's how the people it's depicting lived their lives. Anwar is joined by a supporting cast of other former and current gangsters. Adi is cerebral and interesting in his personal dichotomies. He knows what they did was wrong and chooses to bury it. Herman, a reformed theater kid turned gangster, turned failed politician, is the standout of the film. So the reason that Herman, as we've discussed earlier, the reason Herman wears drag in the film is that before he was really a gangster, he was involved in community theater and he played this drag character in like a, a Sunday night review 
where he would be like the MC and he would come out as this female character and kind of do some song and dance routines and tell jokes and then be the MC for the night. And so when they started making the movie, Anwar was like, oh, Herman, you should be in it too. And Herman was like, oh, I don't want to be in it. I wasn't there. But you know who would make a really cool Greek chorus? I mean, he didn't put it in those words, obviously, but a Greek chorus, we should use my old drag character that I used to do. She's through the whole movie. When I was watching the movie for the first time, I really, I wanted to see more of those sequences as actual film. Like I wanted to see them with the production value that they had and through the camera that was actually shooting the scene. And I wanted to really watch that movie. That frustration, I think, is part and parcel of the idea. And I think it's intrinsic to why it works. And I'm so glad that the movie didn't give me what I wanted because what I got is even better and so indescribable and way, way, way superior to just, wow, look at this weird, shitty movie these mass murderers made. Yeah, and I think I think going back to what I said before, I think that helps to make the reality feel real. The things that they did are so over-the-top horrific. How open and like almost cheerful and childlike they are in the way that they brag about it, it feels unreal. If you just watch a straightforward documentary of this, if you just watch the original thing that he was making, which was just interviews with these people, you might not believe it. You might just think it's staged or something. Um, especially if you're an Indonesian citizen in, in which you might literally think that it's propaganda, it's staged and not real. The dreamlike quality of it, those weird sequences, and then like getting a glimpse into that fictional movie that they're making and seeing it, but never quite being able to, to be immersed in it. Never, never actually getting to be in that real movie through the real movie camera, always kind of standing to the back and kind of looking over somebody's shoulder and seeing it in it like, from a voyeur's perspective, it all helps to focus and ground the reality of it. And it's almost like it's providing like a constant foil to it. So at all times, these absurd and surreal elements are always reminding you like, oh shit, like this other stuff is real. Like when they're talking about decapitating people and how it's better to cut off their heads from the back because if you do it from the front, it's loud because they make noises and also blood shoots out. So you want to decapitate somebody from the back because it's easier and there's no noise and there's no blood. Like you're, you're it's constantly reminding you like that shit is real. Do not lose sight of that. It's interesting. The reality too is, is as you're, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of kind of like Anwar's arc over the course of the movie where he goes from being this kind of like cheerful kind of literally dancing grandpa to dyeing his hair, recreating all these scenes. And they, they shoot this scene where it's an interrogation scene where he plays one of his victims as, you know, a communist who's pulled into a dark room and then there's a head, a hood put over him. And then Herman puts the like homemade garrote thing that Anwar used to kill people and starts miming that he's going to garrote him. And Anwar stops him and he like he can't even talk he just like breaks down crying and pulls the hood off and he's like almost unresponsive and the trauma just bubbles up through him like he's just so you can see that he's really getting it what he did and how and the level of horror that he has committed in that scene when they were recreating it and then the end of the end of the movie is joshua oppenheimer going to his house and screening for him a couple of these scenes 
And Anwar says something to the effect of like, you know, I really feel what the victims felt. And Joshua Oppenheimer very politely says, well, I don't know that that's true, Anwar, because they were killed. You killed them. Uh, you can feel empathetic, but I don't know that you really feel that pain because you're not experiencing that. And he like almost like a child, like looks up at Joshua Oppenheimer and kind of goes like, no, Joshua, I really feel it. And then it cuts to the both of them going back to that same second floor landing office building where he murdered all those people. And he like starts walking around and trying to re-explain in the same way that, you know, the movie opens with him explaining how he killed all these people. He tries to explain it again. And he has these like body wrenching dry heaves where it's like his whole body is in conflict and is trying to separate itself. Like there's two Anwars. There's the Anwar that is a war criminal and is proud of it. And then there's the kindly old man that has grandkids. And those two people are like literally ripping the body apart. I mean, obviously I've heard people dry heave and seen horrible things. That was such a specific sound and sh and shape that his body made. And yeah, I don't know. It's so, it's so dark and yet so fascinating to see someone come to terms with that level of atrocity. Yeah, there's there's another moment in that scene whenever he gets the hood put on him and then he kind of has to stop and he's like, I, I can't do this again. When he's just sitting there and he's emotional and he's, you know, all these emotions are bubbling up and he's just sitting there silent, almost like catatonic. And Herman, who was the one who was like playing the character who was pretending to kill him, they hang on the scene for a second. And I, and I thought it was I thought it was really emblematic of what what I've been talking about, what we've been talking about, you know, for a while of, you know, the fact that, you know, they are so forthcoming about the 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 details. They're obsessed with history. They they, they talk about history a lot every time that they um that they talk about these things, they keep harping on this idea that it's their history. And like, I'm talking about this because it's my history. And they, they, there's a hard separation between what they perceive as factual history and like morality and emotional truth and their own feelings. Like those two, those two, those two things are completely separate and they're very forthcoming and blunt and right there ready to um, be, be open about what they perceive as history, but they repress their feelings and their emotions deep, deep down. And it's hidden under several layers of kayfabe, you know, even to the point where there was a scene in Look of Silence that really reminded me, going back to what I said about parallels between the, uh, the events in this and, you know, stuff in our country. In Look of Silence, there's a scene where Adi is talking to one of the death camp leaders and he's talking about these things and he's telling him like he's asking him questions about like what did you do what happened what um you know how did these people get killed you know what was the reason for killing them and you know all these all these questions that are human questions they are questions about humanity and eventually he gets annoyed and he's like, you need to stop asking these questions. I don't want to talk about anything political. I don't like talking about political stuff. Number one, I thought that was very interesting because I feel like that's all, what a lot of people do here. That's a very common thing that, that you hear is people, when people start talking about something heavy that you have to think about, a common tactic for people to get out of it is to say, I don't, I don't want to talk about politics. And it's like, is that, is that politics is like, People being, you know, exterminated and, 
concentration camps and shot on the streets is that politics that's not that's not politics that's just that's life that's things that are happening and people like weirdly put it in this box of like oh that's politics i want nothing to do with that Ugh. um to 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 insulate themselves from it and i thought it was interesting that this guy basically had the same exact attitude towards it where he 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 separates himself from these things by labeling it as political and he doesn't want to talk about politics um when in reality you're talking about like hey you murdered a bunch of people but um but th- those things are very hard separated and there's a there's a moment in that scene whenever he has the hood over him and then he stops and he says i can't do this anymore and he's like overcome with emotion and herman is standing there and he kind of he's standing there in silence he's kind of looking over at him and he keeps like kind of like moving his hand up almost as if he's going to try to pat him and he always he 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 does it like a couple times like two or three times and he keeps like tentatively doing it and then not doing it and kind of thinking better of it and after this long sequence where he's like overcome with emotion and Herman is just standing there kind of like silently like assessing the situation and you can see that he wants to do something about it he just doesn't know what to do about it and then finally his answer he just says uh drink some water and he gives him a water bottle that was the best thing that he could muster in his attempt at trying to comfort his friend to truly comfort him to pat him on the back to hug him to say it's going to be okay or whatever or to ask him what's wrong those would all be acknowledgments because he knows he knows why he's doing that he knows why anwar is overcome with emotion he's overcome with emotion because the reality is rushing into him of what he did and the fact that he murdered these people and it was horrific and herman knows that but these people do not acknowledge that nobody here acknowledges this thing that they know to be true even the simple act of patting him on the back would be an acknowledgement of like you are crying and freaking out because you murdered innocent people overcome with this desire to somehow comfort his friend but overrided by this extreme programmed compulsion to not acknowledge the reality of this he just drinks some water it's like a simulation of his expression of empathy or his expression of sympathy or his trying to comfort him the water represents that it's encased in its bottle and it's still he's still insulated from it he doesn't have to get the water on him and acknowledge that he's wet he just can keep it in the bottle and very you know surgically pass it to him and drink this even though you know how's that going to help you you're crying why would why would you drink water what does that mean the act of killing was almost a decade-long project but oppenheimer had unfinished business in indonesia after joshua finished the act of killing but before it came out he returned to the country and shot additional footage to produce a sequel film titled the look of silence that would be 10 times as dangerous and not only involve Joshua, but a local family as well. Oppenheimer described the look of silence as, to my knowledge, the only non-fiction film that has ever been made where survivors confront perpetrators while they're still in power. Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please 
join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. Act three. Do these glasses make me look homicidal? Or I'm still a good person even if I drink blood and cut the genitals off of people I only know in passing, right? Over the 10 years that it took Oppenheimer to make the act of killing, he befriended many people in the Indonesian survivors community, and specifically a man named Adi, who became a close personal friend. This man watched hours and hours and hours of footage that went into the making of the act of killing, at one point even discovering that his older brother, Romley, had been murdered. The film opens with him watching footage of his brother's murderers explaining how they killed him. We watch him sit in silence as he absorbs the tragedy, pain and contemplation edge across his face. The film follows this man, Adi, a local optician who decides he must go interview all of the local mob bosses who killed his brother Romley. He wanted to look them in the eye. He wanted to experience them firsthand. This, prior to the act of killing's release, was like a Jew in Nazi Germany asking to confront the people who murdered their family. It was unthinkable. And yet, Adi did it. And the reason why Joshua Oppenheimer made a film about it is because he understood that regardless of good or bad, after the act of killing premiered, he would not be able to safely return to Indonesia. In terms of a sequel, most movies go bigger for their second installments, but not The Look of Silence. It's a quiet film, until it's not. It has huge, sweeping emotional moments, and danger lurks around every corner, but it doesn't have the surrealness or the theatricality of the act of killing. The film appears more understated and subdued on its surface. It's more intimate. It's about staring literal war criminals in the face, but then it also has consequences like this in it. A largely unnoticed victory over the communists has been decisively won in Southeast Asia. In fact, it is the single biggest defeat ever handed to communists anywhere in the world. Sixteen months ago, these beautiful and tranquil-looking islands exploded with stunning violence. In many cases, entire families were liquidated, and the purge continues to this day. Bali is such a beautiful island. The people are so attractive, climate's so lovely. It's hard to believe that so many unpleasant things went on here in the last year. Yeah, but now... Bali become more beautiful without communists. What actually happened here in this village? Some of the communist leaders from this village realized that they're wrong already. And they come to the village council and ask when the village council will clean their village from the communist people. You mean the communists themselves asked to be killed? Some of them. And some of them want to be killed and now give me a chance to say goodbye to all of my relatives and the next morning I'm ready to be killed. Indonesia has a fabulous potential wealth in natural resources. Goodyear's Sumatran rubber empire is an example. The rubber workers union was communist run, so after the coup many of them were killed or imprisoned. Some of the survivors, you see them here, still work the rubber, but this time as prisoners and at gunpoint. The different islands deal with the communist survivors in various ways. 
In some camps, they are starved to death or released periodically to be killed by the local citizens. Ted Yates, NBC News, reporting. The film also heavily features Adi's mother and his father, who is suffering from dementia. They're old and infirm. At one point, she claims to be over 100 years old. Yeah, I mean, when I found out, like, they were kind of looking and she said something about, like, seeming like she must be over 100. And then they look at his dad's ID and according to it, he's 103. I was just like, Jesus, even the dad who is, like, really sick and, like, deaf and blind and just emaciated, he still kind of looks really good for 103 years old. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Yeah, one of the interesting things about the movie, The Look of Silence, is how there's, like, one of the themes of the movie is, like, memory and how culturally Indonesians remember the genocide. And also that's, that's kind of juxtaposed against Adi's father, who is suffering from dementia and has these issues with memory and he thinks that he's like 16 years old and he doesn't recognize people and he's deaf and blind and yeah and mo- kind of most of his like most of his memories are just old songs from his youth so, and he sings them which is almost like this weird this weird picturesque depiction of the past like his dementia has created the ultimate forgetting of the past like he's sanitized everything about the horrific history of indonesia except for the most glitzy perfect idealistic elements of it which is the music that he listened to as a child the film is an intimate portrait of the impacts of war and what happens when there is no reconciliation it's a series of vignettes where adi interviews people that either were directly involved in romley's murder or passively The mobster that cut off Romley's penis is photographed wearing glasses and repeatedly admits to drinking human blood. And yet he's this cute old man. He's like, he's like this. It's such a bizarre. It's the character you were just talking about who was like, I don't like talking about things that are political. I don't want to talk about things that are political. Romley like goes over to his house under the guise of giving him an, uh, an assessment of if he needs glasses. And so they put these large spectacles on him that have these slots in the front where you can slide in different uh types of glass that will help him see and the metaphor of literally helping someone to see while asking them about the past that they refuse to acknowledge and refuse to reckon with their own impacts and actions is so fascinating and the man literally says like you know People who commit murder go crazy if they don't drink the blood of their victims. Straight up. Yeah, un- like unprompted. Not ironic. Yeah, and he just says it out of nowhere. I mean, once again, it might it might be editing, but they're just sitting there and he just says it. And it's that weird, like it's that weird like word vomit where you're just like they're they're looking for opportunities to confess these things. They just want to they 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 need to get it out of their minds and into reality and let somebody hear it. And they repress it so much that like they just weirdly vomited out at just bizarre moments that uh, out of nowhere. But then you also have like the flip side where there are some types of people who they just they kind of like are social chameleons and will kind of mimic the people they're around. So 
at one point Romley or uh, Adi goes and talks to this guy who's higher up and was like ordering the killing and he asks him questions and the guy's kind of bragging and saying that he did this and he did that and he ordered all these people to do this and do that and then Adi asks him you know he tells him like my brother was murdered because of your orders you killed my brother what does that make you feel and he's like well I didn't really I yeah, didn't kill just, your brother he just hard backpedals he's like oh well I mean I was I was barely I, I wasn't that wasn't involved in that that was that was some other death squad <laughs> which is just so dark yeah. it's so dark it's so dark yeah um and like and you kind of like over the course of the film there's this kind of tapestry that's woven with these people that are trying to reconcile with the things that have happened in the past and the way that they're educating the kids about what's happened and and the the mother telling the stories of you know Romley's death was horrible basically he got taken in the night because he was accused of being a communist stabbed multiple times was bleeding out ran like escaped one death squad ran home to try and get help his mom was like like putting pressure on the wounds to try and keep him alive and then other dudes showed up and were like oh we're gonna take him to the hospital and so they take him and then they go kill him. And the way that they ultimately kill him is they stab him repeatedly and he still survives. And then they cut off his penis and he bleeds to death. And that is like, it's just so traumatic. It's so, 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 so awful. And these men are just openly discussing it repeatedly. Yeah, yeah openly discussing it. And, you know, like those two guys specifically, like reenacting everything, like two kids, like, excitedly showing you like a sandcastle that they built or whatever it's so fucking weird and like those two men specifically one of those men is still alive and the other one has passed away and so one of the there's two key sequences in the in the movie but one of them is they go to you know the one of the men and and Adi kind of is talking with this man and he keeps trying to form a connection with him and the man won't interact with him he just keeps saying it's getting late you guys should leave it's getting late you should leave shouldn't be here it's getting late and that man's daughter apologizes she's the only person in the movie to say hey this was wrong i'm sorry that my father did this to you and she still kind of gives him a pass she's like he's got dementia he doesn't know what's going on he knew what was going on the whole movie is about a character or a, a person with dementia that motherfucker did not have dementia but she still is like, she's the only one that has the humanity enough to be like, hey, my father's misdeeds don't define me. And I want you to know that I don't think what he did was right and it was wrong and I'm sorry. And they end up hugging and like, it's this, like, I don't know that I would have the personal strength to forgive someone like that. Maybe I would. Maybe maybe you never know what you're gonna do when until you're in the that place. But that is just so fucking dark, and it is a testament to the human spirit that Adi even had a desire to do this, let alone to actually go and seek out these people and discuss these things with them and to attempt to find peace. Because that's the thing that's so impressive about this movie is it doesn't have any of the surreality or the kind of big hook ideas that Act of Killing has, but it has this kind of deeply human core where this man 
has been done so wrong and so much has been taken from him. And it's not an angry movie. There's no righteous indignation. There's no fire and brimstone. There's no accusatory moment where he stands up in parliament and is like, you people are wrong. There's, you know, there's no American idea of like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. There's just a quiet, seething heartbrokenness through the whole movie. And, you know, in that interaction where he's talking to the guy with the mustache that just keeps asking them to leave, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't react in any sort of meaningful way other than to embrace the empathy that that man's daughter is showing him, literally and metaphorically. And that is just so impressive. Yeah, there's even a moment like in this in this movie, they show a lot of the footage that we didn't see in the act of killing the stuff that he shot interviewing the the killers who are reenacting their murders that he never actually actually made it into the movie and only in small pieces we saw it. And this movie is all about Adi watching that footage. So he gets to watch all the footage that we didn't see that like was on the cutting room floor of the act of killing. And most of those sequences, we watch the footage on a TV and then we see a, reverse on Adi just thoughtfully watching it and it's almost like a it's you know he has a very he has a very neutral expression a very thoughtful expression but an expression that you can almost project yourself onto so it's almost this weird way of creating an avatar um so that once again you're not just peering down onto this and being like oh how horrifying you're actually there you can actually put yourself in this position and it almost makes you you know, it all, it almost helps you to be as empathetic or as curious as Adi is. Um, but one of the only moments in these sequences, because most of them are just him literally watching in silence and there's these shots, but he never talks. And one of the only moments where he does talk, he's watching one of the men reenacting the murders. And he says, uh, he says, Joshua, um, I, 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 I wonder if maybe they act like this because they know that it was wrong and they feel guilty. And and that's like at the outset, like that, that's in the beginning of the movie. He's watching, he's watching these men describing murdering his brother and like in a very gregarious, cheerfully way, doing it. And his, and his reaction is maybe they're acting like this because they're processing their guilt instead of the, you know, the normal reaction that a lot of people would be ha- would have, which is like these motherfuckers, these pieces of fucking shit. Like, you know, th- that's and that's that's in the very beginning. That's not like after some long journey of acceptance. That's like from the outset. Yeah, and the the movie itself too is like it shares a common structural DNA with Active Killing, and it's hard. I mean, it's it's very strange to admit that you like these movies because there's they're so bred in trauma and like i mean how do you like something like this but the obviously as i previously outlined like i relate to joshua oppenheimer as a filmmaker and i really i love the scope of active killing so much and in some ways look of silence is both a direct sequel and a departure sequel so if if somebody doesn't know that a departure sequel is like a movie that is made to be a, a sequel to a project that is supposed to take things in a different direction you know like you have movies that are kind of rehashes of the same idea 
you know like uh like episode seven is basically just a new hope like it's the same fucking movie it's a chosen one joseph campbell myth you fight a big thing at the end like it's it's the same movie and that doesn't mean you can't like it it's just the same thing and a lot of sequels have that problem where you develop a formula and then you kind of just try and redo that formula over and over again without actually embracing new or different ideas and a departure sequel is we're going to buck trends we're going to purposefully go in a different direction terminator terminator 2 alien aliens bacon and legs bacon and legs miami nights <laughs> i was a big fan of the theme song from bacon and legs miami nights yeah bacon legs i yeah i loved it. did you know that uh haim saban wrote that song yeah well uh uh what is his name Shooky, yeah, Shooky Levy. Shooky Levy. He 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 was singing on that. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to it and you slow it down really really far and then compress it digitally, um, it actually it, it's like a rough draft of their because they also wrote the X Men theme song the so but it all the all the chord progressions are the same but you have to slow it down and then speed it up. And the bacon and legs Miami Nights is uh yeah. is the X Men so, theme. Yeah. So if you want to hear that, you just get the theme song for the X Men animated series off of YouTube or whatever. Slow it down to three hundred percent, and then you speed it up to forty percent, and you'll hear bacon and legs. And if you don't hear that, you did it wrong. Yeah, definitely. You definitely did it wrong. You can join our Facebook group, and there's uh, there's some evidence that Andrew's posted in there. He's he's made some weird memes about it and stuff. But yeah, I feel like you know I, the movie itself it isn't as surreal in its methodology. It's more surreal in its content, in that it's so dangerous to literally go to the guy who murdered thousands of people, including your brother, and go, "Why the fuck did you murder all those people?" And expect him not to try and murder you. Yeah, in that way, it almost kind of it feels like a because of the the way that the the vignette quality of it, and almost the dreamlike quality of the fact of the idea of him just you know it'll just cut to a scene of him sitting with this person and having these these one on one conversations, which you know you would never fathom that somebody would put themselves in that danger. You're you know so you're just sitting there just being like, what the fuck? Like he's just sitting there talking to this death squad leader and like being this honest with him, and you know, he sits there and listens to him talk for a while, and then eventually he's like, well, you know, um, that's all a lie. I you know that you know that's all lies, and he's not doing it in that accusatory way. I don't I don't physically possess the ability to. Um, approach discourse in the way that Adi can in that in this very sort of empathetic and and disarming way but he definitely didn't say it in the way that I said it um and and it almost feels like a like a weird like experimental french new wave film or like that movie waking life the Linklater film. It, it feels like that where it's like it's like you said, it's not it doesn't have the, the extreme surreal imagery of act of killing. And it's not the scope isn't as huge, like visually or conceptually. But the way that the film just cuts around to these sequences where you're just like it just it feels like a 
it feels like a dream sequence that's representative of a, of something else. It feels like this scene where he's sitting in this person's living room, talking to him, confronting, you know, his brother's killer and telling him it feels like it's um, it feels like it's 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 a symbolic representation of an idea. And in that case, and in that sense, it feels like a dream. Yeah. And also the the way it opens is almost shot for shot the same way that active killing opens and there's there's a lot of similar kind of bizarre mysteries in the movie where there's just kind of like things that aren't explained things that are like Oppenheimer isn't really interested in setups he's not interested in establishing context he's not as interested in giving you all the information you need in air quotes he's not he's holding your hand he's not just holding your hand so because of that you get these really interesting moments where conflict is happening while you're sorting out what is happening and so the whole movie just feels super wrought with tension and it's 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 i mean it's it's masterful in a completely different way than active killing is masterful which is infinitely more impressive to me the fact that you would have enough skill to execute something as monumental as the act of killing and then not take an iterative approach to storytelling and be like, okay, I'm going to try and do that again, but better, but to take a completely different approach to storytelling while tricking people into thinking that it's iterative and that they should give you money to see this sequel because they like the last thing you did. Amazing. 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 The film kind of, you know, crescendos and it, it climaxes with Adi and Joshua going to the family of the other man who murdered Romley, Adi's brother. And they, they're going to interview that man's wife, daughter, and two sons. And that since, since Joshua shot his initial interview with that man, he's died. So they have this big set piece at the end of the movie where they're, they're kind of like around a living room sitting and they start talking. And when Joshua interviewed that man in 2010 or 20, you know, 2008, whenever he interviewed him, uh, that man pulled out like a book that he had written that was about how he had murdered all of the communists. And there were diagrams that he drew and, and comics that he had made about how he killed these people. And in the interview, he pulls it out and he's showing it to Joshua and his wife is standing right next to him the whole time. And then in look of silence, they start talking and then it eventually gets around to the subject that Adi was, his brother was murdered by this woman's former husband and this, these men's and woman's father. And all of them are like, no, that no. He never told us about any of this. No, we didn't know. We didn't know any of this. And they all just completely deny it. They pretend like they didn't know anything about it. Um, and, and specifically, the wife is just completely distraught and destroyed by it. She gets up and leaves at one point, takes her mic off, just refuses to acknowledge that this has happened. Even though she literally was standing next to him when they shot it, that interview seven years prior. Yeah. And he's, um, he's just talking about all of it openly. So my question for you is, in that sequence in the film, do you think, because that woman's consternation did not seem fabricated to me. It seemed like she was genuinely upset by this. But do you think that's something where the reality of that is so traumatic that you 
you kind of just assume that you, the partner you're with is that they're just making things up in order to seem cool and that they're not actually a war criminal. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. That was that was what I was going to say is I think that that comes from a place of because, you know, because like he like at one point in that interview, he's like, and what I did to women is I would do this. And he was like, lift up their dress. And I guess he was simulating like stabbing them from the vagina and then like running the the knife up. I guess that's what yes. he was simulating. And he yeah. was he was like simulating it on her. And whenever he did it, she would like laugh almost like, you know, you're getting tickled or whatever. Or somebody's doing something goofy. And yeah, I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, whether it was actively thinking this or just telling herself this, that she was able to just rationalize that he was just like goofing around, like making up stories and like, you know, like, you know, uh, tall tales, like people who talk about catching giant fish or whatever. He's just he's just, you know, quote unquote locker room talk, as as uh, some people would say. And I just grab them by the mass genocides. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that I, I do. I think that she's able to rationalize it like that. But then that's not a to the mere act of somebody saying he did this. That then becomes an accusation, like a real concrete accusation. It's not just your husband telling stories. That's somebody saying you did that like that happened and he and you know that didn't that he didn't do that in the original interviews like th those interviews were not designed to be probing like i've said before he didn't he just listened to him talk but now there's actually an there's actually a voice coming back and saying your your husband actually did these things like making it real making it concrete so i, I yeah i do think i do think that whether it was genuinely thinking it or just allowing herself to be delusional and get lost in that fantasy that she just wrote it off as tall tales, like boasting made up stories. From here, Adi and Oppenheimer show two clips to the family and they just can't handle it. They, they, they stop watching one clip halfway through and they won't even let the second one be played. And when Oppen when Oppenheimer tries to show them the second one, one of the sons just keeps repeating, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about this. And I think that is a key phrase because he's saying that I have a preserved sense of innocence currently and I want to keep that plausible deniability. Like there's no way that they don't know. Yeah, I want to go just back no to when I didn't have to grapple with this. Yeah, yeah. And it's so interesting the way that he subconsciously phrased that. Ultimately, the film ends with heartbreaking footage of Adi's father lost in his own mind. Film is often thought of as the pinnacle of artistic achievement, and as such, influences culture more than any other artistic medium. In just a few moments, we'll chronicle the fallout of these two films on Indonesian culture, government, and daily life. Act four, but what if all this work was for nothing? When Joshua Oppenheimer set out to screen the act of killing, he knew that if he had submitted it to the Indonesian censors board, the film would just flat out not be seen. 
It would not get approved to be watched, period. And then it would get banned, making the film illegal to screen, which would then make it illegal to watch, a felony act in Indonesia, in fact, which could be used by police officers as an excuse to raid people's homes indiscriminately. Saying that Indonesia still has problems is an understatement, but it's growing and changing and quickly. So what did Oppenheimer do? He set up private screenings for intellectuals, journalists, and members of the arts fields in Indonesia. He screened it through human rights organizations and nonprofits. He specifically attempted to court the biggest news and journalism entities that would be sympathetic to his cause. Any guesses how it went? Well, one journalist came up to him after screening and said, there was Indonesia before the act of killing, and there is now Indonesia after the act of killing. The film took off like wildfire. They gave it away in Indonesia on activekilling.com. They later made it free on YouTube, accessible to Indonesians all over the country. It became a cultural conversation piece. It got people talking, which then got journalists covering the story and the film. We made the film available for free download for anyone logging on to activekilling.com from Indonesia. And then it's now become available for free streaming in an Indonesian language for, without subtitles in Indonesia. And it's basically come to the country like the child in the emperor's new clothes saying something that people had no, long known was true but been too afraid to say. Or exactly as Adi said it would come to the country, it so it has. The film has opened in that sense a space for people to talk about something that until now they haven't been able, able to talk about without fear. And when the film was nominated for an Academy Award, the government finally broke its silence on the film with a wholly inadequate statement, except for the fact that they said, yes, this is a crime against humanity, but we will have to deal with it in our own time. Now that was significant because until then, the government had maintained that this was heroic. And actually just a few months earlier, the president had proposed that the architect of the, of the killings be anointed as a national hero for his role in the killings. Suddenly the government's acknowledging this is not heroic. This was a crime against humanity. That's not a sign of goodwill, but it is a barometer of how much the public discourse has changed since the since the film first appeared in 2012. So from here, Oppenheimer starts making a, a, a campaign to get the movie released in the States. He went about that in a very specific way. He went to a film festival in England where Werner Herzog was giving a talk and asked to meet with him. And Herzog was like, ah, I'm busy, but I guess if you can come to breakfast while I'm eating, we can talk about your movie. And Herzog, remember, he met him when he was in his 20s uh, after college, where he resided at the, over that Chicago Film Festival and presented him with an award. And also one of the producers on the film was Werner Herzog's associate producer on a couple projects or something. So they ha he had like the, a couple tenuous connections to him. So he gets to him, they go, they sit down for, for breakfast, and he gives him a DVD and has a portable player on a laptop and he, he plays eight minutes of the film and um, Warner Warner goes back to his hotel room later that night after, you know, doing whatever he has to do for this film festival and he watches the movie on the hotel DVD player and he immediately then calls Joshua Oppenheimer and he's like, I'll do it. I'll, I'll executive produce the film. And then Werner Herzog gets Earl, uh, Earl Morris involved and Earl Morris also executive produces the film. From there, um, 
you know, with the two biggest documentary filmmakers of all time co-signing it, it plays at festivals all over the States and Canada and Europe. Um, and it uh, ends up getting picked up by Alamo Draft House. And then this is where things take another turn in terms of its Western audience. The film has obviously already accomplished what it designed to do, and its Indonesian accomplishments and impacts are actually quantifiable social change. This is almost like a victory lap because even, you know, Oppenheimer says in interviews, he says, this was never supposed to be, because somebody asked him like, you know, what is our responsibility watching this as Westerners? What is our responsibility um, in, in, in action to, in response to this movie? And he says, the movie was never made as some way of getting the word out to Western civilization about this thing. It was never made for that. It was made for Indonesians. It was made to be viewed by Indonesians and um, for them to be able to grapple with the reality of this thing, this shared trauma that they experienced. So yeah, the, the movie was never made as once again, any other filmmaker I feel that would have just been in the right place at the right time to make this movie, not only would the, would the movie have been made completely differently, but it would probably have been made for a completely different reason because I, you know, I think most filmmakers would have made this movie with it in mind of exposing this to the rest of the world. Um, but that's not why he made it. He made it for them. The cherry on top of that victory lap to mix metaphors is that the act of killing gets nominated for an Oscar for best documentary. Unfortunately, it doesn't win, which is a crime against humanity, <laughs> which is hyperbole. Obviously, this whole episode's about literal crime against humanity. I, f I feel bad that we went up for um, the making of Bacon and Legs Miami Nights that year. It's, it's our fault that this movie didn't win. Yeah. Was the name of that movie again? Was it called Plunger Talk? Plunger Talk. Yeah. Yeah. Plunger Talk, the documentary about Plunger Talk, 10 years of bacon and legs, colon Miami Nights. It was fun to make, though. I liked making that documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot less war crime, though. Yeah. Weirdly, Anwar Congo was in it, though. But that's because he yeah. was he was he directed a bunch of episodes. Yeah. 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 After uh, after <laughs> after the act of killing, he just got the directing bug and mm -hmm. he just came over yeah. here. And honestly, that was a long discussion we were, where we were having, you know, separation of the art and the artist, you know, of like separation of the art and the war criminal. Can we hire this man? Yeah. True problematic fave. One of the yes. one of the best. <laughs> oh one of the best TV directors <laughs> in the business. <laughs> You know what? After uh, after the show running for as long as it did, which honestly was longer than I thought it was going to. Yes, we definitely made the right decision. Mm -hmm. So it loses it loses best documentary, but it obviously is that just has no bearing on the film's success because awards in the arts is fucking stupid. Um, and the film the film just reshapes the fabric of Indonesian life. It inspires the largest print magazine publisher in Indonesia to make a special edition print magazine um, that chronicles this genocide and has profiles on the various perpetrators and victims. The film sells out and then goes, or not the film, the book, the magazine sells out three times and goes back to print. Um, Active Killing has basically just completely recontextualized this story and exposed the lies that the Indonesian people have told themselves for decades and decades. 
And the, the, the craziest thing is that everybody knew they were false, but because nobody was pointing at it and saying this is false, everybody was just kind of going along with it. And the film acts as kind of a permission structure for cultural catharsis. Yeah, just the shared hallucination or just everybody just collectively ignoring an elephant in the room. And then in 2014, when The Look of Silence was released, it had a similar impact, which is crazy that it happened twice this way, um, where it it galvanized people into kind of acknowledging that the perpetrators were people in their midst that was their neighbors. You know, it was a it wasn't a systemic extermination of people from a governmental apparatus standpoint. It was a an individual to individual hatred motivated personal greed motivated yeah it's it's um, it's chilling how personal interpersonal the, the murders are like you think of traditional genocidal narratives yeah you know nazi germany and the you know the the the, the concentration camps and the and the gas chambers and the gestapo and um the ss and the this idea which is typically a part of that narrative of the dehumanization of the people which uh you know creates a paradigm in which you can you know allow yourself to you know kill these people in large numbers because you've you've reduced them to you know non-humans they've been stripped of their identity so as part of that structure you know there's this very stark sim- symbolic um, this this sim the symbolism that these you know these Nazi officers who are killing these these Jewish prisoners um they they can't tell one from the other they they don't know their identities they're completely anonymous and that's part of the kind of the cruelty of it is that they're just they're just indiscriminately murdering these people without even knowing about knowing them knowing about them having any idea who they are you know not knowing their names. Um, and these are kind of the opposite where they, they know these people like on an individual basis. Like when those, when those killers are going out and reenacting the murders, they're like, they're literally like, and this is how we killed Romley. Like they remember how they killed each individual person and they know their names. They know who they are. They're members of their community. They know their families. They are people that know them. In 2015, Oppenheimer was interviewed for the New York Times, in which he made the statement, the West shares a great deal of responsibility for the mass killings in Indonesia, noting in particular that the United States provided special radio systems so that the army could coordinate the killings over the vast archipelago. A man named Bob Martins, who worked for the United States Embassy in Jakarta, was compiling lists of thousands of names of Indonesian public figures who might be opposed to the new regime, and handed these lists the Indonesian government. That's another part of what we were talking about before, that the movie isn't made with a Western audience in mind. It's not made to, in the way that a lot of documentaries about sort of horrific third world um, historical events are made to like expose them. Like, look at this horrific, barbaric thing that happened in this other country uh, so that you can kind of go, oh, I can't believe this is so horrifying. I can't I can't believe this kind of stuff happens in the world. And the movie is not made with that in mind. Um, and it's not made in the same way that those types of movies are made. And and this is this is a big part of that is, um, you know, what's talked about 
in the movie and it was talked about in both movies um, and also what's talked about in many interviews with Joshua Oppenheimer is that, uh, you know, the, the, I think the specific wording that he uses is when asked about, you know, why the U.S. government didn't intervene in it or, you know, what the what the Western world's reaction to this would be that, you know, this is actually this actually was the Western world's vision for Indonesia. That's the literal verbatim words that he uses. Um, is that this was part of their plan the, the, you know, they were, they were, they were not only complicit in this, but they actively participated in it. This is what they wanted. And, you know, it's not that the, you know, the United States wanted a genocide necessarily. They just didn't care. What they wanted was the entire world to be against communism, the, the, the symbolic concept of communism because we were steeped in the cold war at war. And, you know, it was a war of who can paint the other as the biggest evil entity looming over the world stage. So it was literally just a like, who can make everybody more scared of the other person wins? And so in that sense, they, you know, the United States and the Western world, they were engaged in this global campaign to just create this boogeyman that was communism and so in indonesia that involved that they murdered all of them there was a it was a genocide but uh united states didn't care about that they it's not like they said go kill these people they just were they were fine with it and they helped facilitate it because it it helped their their efforts and it goes back to the, the you know the slave labor um, consumer electronics and, and textile industry stuff. Did you uh, get around to reading that short story I sent you? Oh shit! I completely forgot. I fucking no. <laughs> I like I like I like opened it and I was like, oh yes, I will read this, and then haven't at all. I I wanted to talk about it a little bit. I was mostly just inspired by the first paragraphs of the episode. It's a very short story. It's like literally, you know, whatever. I don't know what the page count is because books aren't a thing anymore, but it's it's something you could read in like 10 minutes. The Ones Who Walk Away from Amalas. So this is a short story that is from 1973 and, you know, oddly prescient for the modern age. But basically, you know, the concept of the story is that there's this utopia and it's called Amalas. And it's just it's it's just like the literal platonic ideal of a of a utopia. Everything is perfect. Everybody is happy. There's no problems in this very magically realistic way. So basically, there are certain members of this city. Everybody is super happy. Everybody, it's you know the greatest place to live in the world. But there are certain people who end up discovering that essentially, once again, in this very magically realistic way, in this kind of vague symbolic way all of the happiness and joy and perfection in the city is all created by the suffering of one child there's a there's a child who is locked away in a room and inevitably certain people in the city discover um, or have this awakening and discover that the happiness of the city and the utopian quality of it is all on account of this one child who has never known a moment of happiness in his entire life. And then they're sort of given, they're given that moral quandary of like, you're living in this perfect place where you know true happiness. Everything is great. 
you'll never have to worry about another problem for the rest of your life. But you have to do that with the knowledge that it's at the expense of the everlasting trauma of this one person. Some of them choose to shut that off and just go back to that life. And some of them choose to leave the city and say, like, I can't do that. It's such a perfect metaphor for what, you know, the way that we live our lives now, basically. Obviously, we don't live in a utopia, but compared to certain compared to certain areas of the world, though, we do. Well, compared to certain areas of the world, yes, but also pre pandemic, we kind of did live in a consumer utopia. Maybe it, it didn't extend to other elements. We don't live in a society where total happiness exists. We don't live in a society where everybody is happy and has no problems. Certainly, there's a lot of psychological and mental health issues. There's a lot of economic problems. But for a certain percentage of the population, the upper affluent population of the United States, we live in a consumer utopia where you can just be like, I'm hungry. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Knock, knock, knock. Ooh. I'm nom, nom. like. That, that's that's a, the, <laughs> I love it. But but seriously, like like that that we we do we or we did or even even now we kind of do like no, the, we still do the we fact, absolutely still do. the fact that there's a global pandemic and yet we can still get fast food delivered to us that is a consumer utopia, but it's at the expense of these literal slave children. That we all collectively choose to pretend don't exist. It's like the weirdest dynamic. Even, I mean, even Joshua Oppenheimer talks about it in, in one of the random interviews I saw. And he mentions like, we're all complicit in these kinds of things. Like right now I'm wearing this suit. And, you know, as a matter of fact, by coincidence, it was produced in Indonesia. And even he knowing these truths and having spent that portion of his life making this movie, he still exists within the paradigm. And it's this paradigm where you just kind of ignore that that's part of it and well i mean that's that's the functioning side of it right the, your functional methodology is like if you spent your entire day consumed with grief and anguish over the the passive endorsement to the trauma that you can contribute to the world you would never do anything you would never eat food you would never wear clothes you would never leave the house but the thing that's even crazier about it is that that metaphor that you were using of the matrix or of the short story is it's almost like if you were presented with the, you know, the, um, the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many conundrum. And then yeah. you chose to, in air quotes, leave the, the matrix only to be in another matrix. Like yeah. there's no way there's, unfortunately there, unless you want to live out in the middle of nowhere, away from society, make your own clothes, grow your own food and, propagate your own little mini town of however many children you can have like there is no other way out like humanity's hardwired into this recursive loop of suffering now which is it's super bleak and and the thing that's the thing that's the bleakest about it is that there is no alternative there are many moral quandaries which you can choose to embrace the more ethical solution to um you know, factory farming, you can choose to purchase goods in local f- farmers markets or uh, eat vegan or, you know, do all of these various things. But even in those solutions, they're only more ethical. They're not completely ethical. Like those animals that are being kept on free range farms, like that's great that they get to, in air quotes, live a, a better life, but then they're going to fucking get murdered and you're going to eat them. And so there's this 
weird like suffering is just hardwired into existence um and maybe maybe there's a maybe there's a conversation there about is there a proportional amount of suffering that must equate to a proportional amount of joy in a in a sentient being's life like does that just happen like is there this weird kind of existential thing where the presence of sentient life necessitates both states of being i don't know I, that, that that's, seems really weird to me, and I, I don't think that sounds right, but I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking about it yesterday. I'm not a believer in karma as a concept. It's not something that I talk about. I'm not like, oh, I'm, I'm having good karma. I definitely feel, I think as most human beings feel, something adjacent to a belief in a karmic type system, which is just that like, I want to do good things and I want to help people in certain ways and put out positive energy that I want to get back. I don't necessarily assign that as the definition of a karmic system. And I was thinking about people who talk about karma and, and say like, oh yeah, the, I'm having, I'm getting, I feel like I've got good karma because I did this and then this happened. And I was thinking about the fact that like, you really have to exercise a massive amount of confirmation bias and you really have to ignore certain elements of your life and kind of hyper-focus on smaller aspects of your life to believe in a karmic system because in the context of our sort of surface level conscious life, you can say like, oh yeah, like I don't, I'm not mean to people. I don't do these things. I did this good thing. And so I built up this karma. And so this thing happened to me and I feel like that karmically paid off. But if you actually look at the reality of the macro scope of life, the fact that we all walk around typing on phones that were created by slave children and wearing clothes that were created by slave children and taking advantage just implicitly of systems that are designed to oppress other people, none of us would have good karma. We would all have terrible karma at all times if karma was real. We would all have horrible karma. Or as my friend pointed out to me who I was talking to this about, karma does exist and we do all have bad karma. And that's why everything that's happening right now is happening. <laughs> 2020 is is the definitive proof that karma actually does exist yes somewhere in the world there's just a bunch of not white people and they're disposable and we don't care what happens to them as long as we get this thing that we want and we want this thing that we want you get it to us how in whatever means necessary and we don't want to know what it is you're doing. Just do it and don't tell us about it and don't let any of our citizens know about it, but just get us what we want. And it's the same thing, whether it's forcing ch child slaves to make cell phones or murdering millions of people. God damn, we, we need to, <laughs> what? I feel like after, after, <laughs> after like, after this string of the George Zimmerman episode and the Chris Hansen episodes and then this one, like we get the next episode's got to be like the time Sir Arthur Pilkington farted and pooped his pants. Like we got we to gotta do something like <laughs> deep cuts. Deep cuts got dark. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, like that's mostly my fault. We had a, we had a uh, brief reprieve with the Bella Thorne, but. Well, you know, to try and end this on something of a a nice note before going out on the dark, horrible, you know, closing statement that Joshua Oppenheimer is going to give. Um, the things that are nice about this story to me is that there is a little silver lining in that 
in 2014, Joshua Oppenheimer was given the MacArthur Grant, which is commonly referred to as the Genius Grant. And it's so existentially calming to me to know that when you put in vast amounts of work and create something that is so bizarre and Byzantine Byzantine and weird and otherworldly and surreal that people will connect with it because of those qualities, not in spite of it, and that the larger cultural body will acknowledge your work and try and make it easier for you to do more work. Um, and I think it was really hard for Oppenheimer living there for as long as he did in as much danger as he did. You know, he's he's married to a Japanese man and they moved around the world a couple times during all of this. You know, he's kind of intimated that, you know, living in Japan wasn't necessarily an option for them. And I don't know if that's because of bigotry, because of their lifestyle, or because the film industry there is just based around like the live action industry is not hospitable. Yeah. Um, but imagine the Joshua Oppenheimer tokusatsu show. Bro, I am so elated just thinking about that. I don't even know what it would be, but I would watch every second of it. Extreme repressed trauma, henshin into existential nightmares externalized into reality. His his kind of arc is that, you know, he he kind of toils away at the at these two films and then gains that kind of catharsis artistically. And then he moves with his partner to Copenhagen, where he's offered a role as a partner in a film production company there. And since 2015 or so. He's been working on a film, which is a, 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 a fictional narrative film, not docudrama, nonfiction, performancey, whatever the fuck. He's actually Akis he's actually is. directing the third Doctor Strange movie. God, I would I would honestly, whatever that guy does next, I'm here for. It doesn't matter to me. But the thing that's so interesting is, I mean, I know, you know, because you've seen the script. But can you guess like if you had to guess what you thought? Josh Oppenheimer's next movie was going to be what, what what do you think it would be I don't even fucking know yeah I mean any bacon any, and legs any, it's bacon and legs any joke that I want to make aside I just as a serious answer I can only imagine that it would just be a narrative film that, but that would tackle similar themes um, of you know cultural trauma but just in a narrative structure that very well could be the only thing he's said about it is that it is a musical, which I'm all here for. Um, in a closing, bacon and legs. <laughs> He's directing <laughs> Bacon and Legs, Miami Nights, the movie musical. <laughs> oh gosh! Um, before I hit this final closing thought, I feel like we should delve into the conversation that we had started earlier about the parallels between the parallels between. Um, the things that are happening in Indonesia and the things that are happening here. Do you want to talk about that a little bit before? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I've, I, I touched on a couple of them, you know, here and there, but, um, you know, one thing I was struck by was this idea that I said before about, you know, the, I, the idea of like insulating yourself from having to confront brutal realities about society by sort of labeling them as political and then kind of just taking this stance of like, I don't like to talk about political stuff. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't like to talk about politics. And I thought that that was, you know, weirdly paralleled a lot of people's defense mechanism against confronting brutal realities about 
our society. Aside from that, you know, in terms of other parallels that I noticed, I guess ultimately rather than talking about like specific examples, I can just say that watching that documentary in shades that kind of went in and out of focus for me throughout the movie, mostly act of killing, but a little bit in look of silence. This, this idea that went in and out of focus for me is this feels like an alternate reality where everybody is just way more open and honest about reality, way more open and honest about things that happened, but extremely repressed about their feelings about them. I think I said to you earlier that it was weirdly refreshing in a way to see somebody just be so open and willing to discuss something and and acknowledge it, even if it is horrific mass murders, when here in the United States, it feels like facts just aren't a thing anymore. And people, you know, everybody is just playing a character and you never know what's real anymore. And everything is just so obscured in, in all of the, the abstractions that we have created through brand and corporate political correctness and all these, all these things, the, the politicians and the gangsters and the paramilitary groups, they all feel like, you know, if, if American politicians were just more honest about the extreme corruption that they were participating in. And it's that it's so surreal that it feels like it's not real to, to see a politician um, you know what in the act of killing what was it it was like it was like the it was like a member of parliament it was the vice president the vice president who comes in and he's he participates in a in a reenactment of a slaughter of a village oh that guy oh yeah that guy's a member of parliament i thought you were talking about the the, the vice president goes to a rally for the largest paramilitary group in indonesia and gives them a speech and so the indonesian word for gangster is preman which is derived from i think the dutch word fremen which free man loosely trans yeah which loosely translates to free man and so there's this kind of pun that goes through the whole movie where anwar congo likes movie he likes songs about being free and he likes the idea that he's free from societal's trapping societal trappings so he can go and do what needs to be done it's a very kind of ideological vigilante you know uh hard right you know the the laws aren't going to get it done so i'll get it done ideological approach to things um and so in the movie they show multiple government officials expressing gratitude towards these in air quotes, free men and at one point the vice president gives this rousing speech where he's dressed in the military garb of the paramilitary group um the something youth i forget what the- yeah i don't remember either um it's like a p word um but he and he's he, he the the speech climaxes with him saying we need our free men we need our gangsters yeah and, and there's like a weird dichotomy to that speech too because he starts out by being like they say that you know the ble- whatever youth are are gangsters but you know that you know that's he he basically starts out by saying like people are accusing you of being a gangster but that's that's not true you're not gangsters but then the second half of the speech is is like glorifying gangsters and saying the world needs gangsters and this whole idea of free men and operating outside of government 
Um, and I, and I thought that that was really interesting. The dichotomy of that, the way he's like sort of contradicting himself and he's sort of like half of what he says is denying this accusation that they're gangsters. And the other half is being like, but gangsters are fucking awesome. So why wouldn't you want to be a gangster? Um, which I, I felt like the duality of that and kind of like contradicting yourself and saying one thing and then another. So you're kind of like having your cake and eating it too. You're, you're appealing to do two different groups of people and you don't necessarily care if you've been caught in a contradiction also felt very similar to American political discourse, but like way more straightforward and open, like, like it's just like ratcheted up to like 110%. It's or a hundred, 200%. It's like, it's just like, it's, it's like extreme exaggerated um, versions of the way that, the the way that american politics work it's just like what if what if there was just no artifice of of public optics and and diplomacy and people just didn't give a fuck and just said exactly what they thought at all times because they had impunity because this used to be a a police state where you weren't allowed to dissent so people got used to just saying whatever they wanted in a closing thought Something that comes up again and again is the role of the West's involvement and how these mobsters opened up to an outsider who would normally have thought of Oppenheimer as someone who would judge them. And when asked this question, Oppenheimer always gives a variation on this response. What can, you know, can, what can the West do about this? One of the first things I remind them if I'm doing, if I'm speaking to, if I'm talking after the film is to say we have to remember that the genocide, the military dictatorship which followed, the rule of present day impunity for gangsters and thugs and the use of them by corporations and by the government, this is the West's vision for Indonesia and for many places like Indonesia. And in that sense, and so when you, so not only, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't cross our fingers and hope that the Security Council and the UN will set, up, will set up an international tribunal, a special tribunal to address these crimes, because they never set up international tribunals to, to address crimes uh, that have been in part perpetrated by Security Council members. Never. The, the special tribunal for Yugoslavia, the special tribunal for uh, Cambodia, the special tribunal for Rwanda, these are these have these have gone through because the Security Council members didn't have interest. We're not we're not per- perpetrators of those crimes, but here we have a crime which was perpetrated at least by two secure, permanent members of the Security Council, the United States and England, the United Kingdom, and so of course nothing will be done. And so there's a sense that Adi is speaking about not not just in general terms about how Victor's histories are written and imposed, but he's also speaking to his own case. That, And in fact, at some point he says, look, I say to him, what if you were brought to The Hague? And he says, come on afterwards, you know I'll never be taken to The Hague because you know The Hague has no interest in uh, pursuing this case. Yeah. And, you know, that that sort of dovetails into that scene that he's talking about. He's talking about the first Adi the one from the act of killing, the one that was one of the death squad members or the gangsters. And he says they're in a car and he's talking to them and he's talking about, you know, he's saying like, you know, I don't, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but you know, these things that you did, you know, you, you know, they're, they were, they're considered war crimes. And, and, and he says something along the lines of, you know, why, why should why should anybody have special interest in these things that we did? 
uh, why are these things war crimes? What about what about what the United States did with the extermination of the you know the the Native Americans and you know the colonial the colonialization of of the of America and you know like like why is that somehow better or less of a war crime than what we've done here? And you know the reason for that is because the winner gets to decide what the war crime is. And I'm a winner, so I get to decide whether or not this was a war crime or not. And, you know, that resonated with me a lot, you know, for the reasons of what we talked, what I've touched upon several times in this episode, this idea of these things that we just can choose to ignore in order to continue on with our lives without being crippled by existential horror. Um, and it's this, it's this mass, you know, once again, Indonesia and what they've what's happened with, with them is is ratcheted up to 200 percent or 500 percent. It's an extreme example of it. But we do the same thing. We we collectively agree to pretend like things are not real in order to continue on with our lives all the time. And we 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 like to, we, we think of ourselves. I mean, I don't think of ourselves, but the country as a whole, especially some of our more kind of jingoistic, uh, you know, group, uh, you know, members, uh, think of the United States as like this, this place where these things don't happen. These things are always like other, these horrific tr- atrocities happen in other places. They happen in third world countries and we're a civilized country and these things don't happen to us. We are, we are the greatest country in the world. Um, but, but that we, we do these things are happening here and now all the time. We're all actively ignoring these things that we, that I've discussed, you know, previously. Um, we we put it out of our minds because if we didn't, we would just all kill ourselves. I guess I, I don't know. It, it, it's 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 something that is hard to existentially grapple with on a daily basis. So you just have to ignore it. So when you when you think about these the Indonesians and what they've done with rationalizing this genocide. And you think of how bizarre and surreal that is. And you can't believe that that could happen. Um, It's happening here. You're you're so close to it that you don't realize it. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com where you can find books like uh, Action Hospital and Fuck Off Squad. Andrew, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me... uh, looking for that outfit that Herman was wearing in that scene where they're standing outside of the movie theater because I know it's fucked up to say, but his style was fresh as fuck. The button-up shirt, the over the 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 suspenders, the the handkerchief was a fresh look. Uh you can also find me at DAPriceWrites.com where you can find my comic, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can find Talking Plungers, The Making of Bacon and Legs, Miami Nights. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts podcast Facebook group 
Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and the Dead Boy Detectives, who 